Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor for pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. Being enough is exhausting, but the good news is that you cannot be enough because only Jesus is enough. In Pastor Jesus is Enough, Jeremy Wright Bull invites pastors to hear the words of the risen Jesus in the seven letters within Revelation chapters two and three. The exhortations in these chapters are directed to churches, but they also speak to pastors. In these seven letters, Jesus draws near to pastors, whether hurting or straying, and reminds them of his sufficiency. In these warnings and promises, Jesus has hard words for pastors, but they are words of life. Most of all, Jesus urges pastors to keep their focus on him. I'm here today with Pastor Jeremy Reibel. He's the lead campus pastor of Woodside Bible Church in Plymouth, Michigan, and the executive director of Gospel-Centered Discipleship. He's the author previously of the book Ever Present, How the Gospel Relocates Us in the Present. And he's here today to talk to us about his new book, Pastor Jesus is Enough, Hope for the Weary, the Burned Out, and the Broken. Jeremy, how you been, man? Hey, Jared. Thank you. Great to be with you. I'm doing great, except it's March and it's snowing here. We got like three or four inches last night, and this is the third weekend in a row. So I'm I'm ready for spring. I'm ready for, for some real. weather. Yeah. So are like, are you, I don't know where Plymouth is. Are you near, is all of Michigan near Lake Michigan or are there places that are not? I think uh, in my love and respect to my friends on the west side of the state, I think uh, people on the west side of the states think that, yes, that's true. They're all, everything in Michigan is next to Lake Michigan. <laughs> I actually live on the east side of the state. I'm in the Detroit metro area, and we have a couple other lakes over here on this side, like Huron, Lake St. Clair. We touch Lake Erie. I think Ohio can have that one, though, so like that would be be okay, but... (laughs) I don't envy you with the snow, only because it seems like where I live in particular, and I live in a a little town north of Kansas City, snow removal seems to be a real problem. Every year when snow shows up, the town acts like, what is this that's happening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I want to say to them, guys, this is this is every year. We have a pretty efficient, I think most times when it snows pretty good, we have a pretty yeah. efficient workforce that gets it, gets the roads cleared. And yeah, I mean, when I, doing. when I lived in Vermont, it snowed a lot. Oh, not yeah. as much as you probably get in Michigan, but it snowed a lot. And the roads were always clear, right. it seemed like. Yep. The, the town road crews out working constantly. You, you could get around here, it's like, things shut down. I don't, I don't understand. No, yeah. Well, and if you don't have that and you live in this Northeastern kind of area, upper Midwest, and you get a lot of snow, your kids just will not go to school for like the entire winter. And that, that's a problem in and of itself. So you got to get the road cleared so kids can get to school. People can work. Otherwise we should just hibernate during the winter, which I wouldn't actually be opposed to. I think shutting it down for a few months, having a stack of books and then just emerging in the spring and getting at it would be great. Yeah. Well, we'd love to be able to think that, but the snow day is done because of online stuff now. Yeah, that's true. It's one of the worst, I think, consequences of the pandemic. We're glad that it's over, but now basically we're all accustomed to, oh, let's just hop on Zoom. So there's no such thing as canceling a (laughs) class day or anything like that. Well, brother, I didn't bring you on to talk about the snow. I guess I could do that. It's, it's been, been a pretty mild weather, weather here. Yeah, so, yeah, that's yeah, good. I don't want to <laughs> complain too much because it's been pretty mild. 
I do want to talk to you though about pastor. Yeah. Jesus is enough. The first thing I want to ask you is it's a really interesting conceit actually to pull from revelation you know, two and three, to pull from these letters. It, it's not something that is an automatic, you know, automatically lean that way when you're thinking, let me write a book for pastors. So talk to me about that. Why revelation two and three, where did that idea come from? How do you flesh that out in, in the book? Yeah. So back in 2018, I think it was our church, I preached through these letters uh, to our church and then with our larger body or multi-site church in the Detroit metro area. So we have live preaching at all of our locations. And so we just as a team, were walking through these seven letters as a church family together. And you know, it was great to be able to interact with, here's what Jesus says to the churches, or here's what the spirit says to the churches as each one of those letters uh, unfolds. And as I was working through them, you know, the, the concept of like, we can't really preach to our congregations until we've preached to ourselves. And so I'm reading these letters and I'm hearing them and I'm thinking about, okay, what is Jesus saying to me in this? And not that it's that different from what he's saying to the church, but there's a personal word here. And I think a way in which Jesus is addressing the leader of the church, uh, each of those seven churches in a way of, of as the leader goes, so, so goes the church. And in that, so... I started seeing that. And then in my study, I was reading uh, Peter Lightheart's commentary on Revelation, and he makes a very strong case, at least it was a strong case to me, that the angel of the church in Ephesus or Thyatira, whatever it is there, each letter has that. The angel of the church there is a human representative, a human, uh, he would say a pastor, an elder there. And I was just reading that and I'm like, oh, that's it. There it is. And so that's when I started thinking about, okay, Jesus is addressing us as pastors. He's, he's addressing these uh, particular churches but they're pastors and, and what's going on in their life. And so the call to repentance may be something that the church needs to do in the, each of those letters, but it's probably something definitely that the pastor needs to be doing in his own life. And so that just provided the framework for me to be able to say, okay, I think I can speak to pastors, but I'm gonna let Jesus speak to pastors as he's got these letters or these sermons or whatever you want to call it to these pastors of these churches that we can begin to listen to his voice and hear what the spirit has to say to us as we lead, as we walk with him and journey as people that are under his care. I just find that really fascinating. And it sounds like, you know, it strikes you as something outside the box, I suppose. But mm -hmm. as you explain it, it, it makes total sense, actually, that, I mean, these are letters to the churches and yep. it would make sense that, that the church leadership would want to take these warning seriously and encouragement seriously. The title of your book itself, Pastor Jesus is Enough, this question is a little inside baseball. First of all, is it, was this your original title? I'm very curious to know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not really, but okay. uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember how it, it worked out. So I was in a conversation with my editor and we were doing some of the, just kind of the preliminary pitching of the book really to a publisher. And I, I'd been given the advice of like, hey, let's just write a book on one particular letter. Just focus in on one specific place and kind of develop that. And so I was working through that. And uh, Todd Haynes, who was my editor with this project at Lexham, he said, as we were talking about, it, he said, Jeremy, I think there's something like, I think your idea here on this one particular letter, I, I was think I was focusing in on the letter to Philadelphia. He said, I think that's a subordinate idea. I think there's something bigger out there uh, that you need to explore and write. And I'm just curious what that is. And so that's when I went back to the table and I said, I don't, I don't think it's just one letter. I think it's all seven and really revelation one through five, let's engage with that. And the angle that I was coming at was saying, we need to see Jesus's sufficiency, his supremacy over all things, his glory, his greatness, his goodness for the church and recognize our union with him as believers that we are united to Christ. And so as John Stark says, what's true of Christ is 
true of me. What belongs to Christ belongs to me. And so that was in my mind and talking about union with Christ and his supremacy. And as Todd and I were kind of battling it out and talking it out, it was like, I just want to say pastor Jesus is enough. And that one of the two of us, I don't remember who, one of the two of us dropped that phrase and it was like, that's it. That's the title. <laughs> Let's show that from there on. And it really, it, it stuck. We, in the later conversations down the road on the titling and all of that, it was like, no, we've got the title here. Let's just call it Pastor Jesus is Enough and run with that. Yeah. So it, it wasn't that you had a title in mind. Yeah. Okay. So the development, I just wondered, I was curious if there was some alternate, because usually these things don't end up the way that we, sure, <laughs> uh, the way that we start them. Why do you think, I mean, speaking of the title, it is so simple. It's one of those obvious truths. Yeah, of course, Jesus is enough, right? And and yet it is provocative. There is a need for books like this, and there's a need for this book. Why do pastors, of all people, the ones who are supposed to be, uh, we pay them, most of them anyway, or a large number of them, to make their job Jesus in, in, in a lot of ways, <laughs> Why do they struggle with this concept? Jesus is enough. Yeah. For many reasons. I think simply because our hearts are, you know, as the song says, we're prone to wander and we get into leading a church. We're doing the groundwork of discipleship and evangelism, helping the congregation move forward. And we want to see good gospel growth and, and all of the right things. And there can come a point where we, well, at least maybe for me, it's just me on me on this. Where I can get to a point where I can say, okay, I could, if I just do the right things, if I just get after this, then the church will thrive, it'll grow, it'll be healthy, it'll be all that it needs to be. And and I get phone calls and people in the congregation saying, hey, can you help with this? Or pastor, can you give me counsel on that? Or can you speak to this? And and so all of a sudden we begin to build an identity around ourselves of, okay, I've got to carry the load on this. I've got to be the one to build this. I've got to be the one to to see this through. And, and that's when we get our eyes off Jesus. He's the one who said, I will build my church. And I'll oh, pastor, it's not you. And so we begin to, to look in at the, our own resources and our own strengths or weaknesses and say, I've got to be enough. And that's, that was for me where this all began to sink in. I had the book in theory in my mind prior to 2020. And, and then I, I signed the contract in 2020, started working on it. I even said to my wife, I think Jesus is going to make us walk through some of this stuff so that I, mm -hmm. I'm speaking authentically and I know that Jesus is enough for me. And in the late summer of 2020, our church had been growing. I think all the right things were there and there was a lot of good stuff happening. And then, you know, just the things of 2020 with the, the lockdown and the, the racial unrest and conversations that were going around with that and the political landscape. Those things just began to, to, to affect the church. And, and I was seeking to lead the church well through that minefield of, of 2020, 2021. But I came to a point where I came in on a Sunday morning and what was a growing, healthy, a large congregation was literally cut in half, if not more. And I, I think the first song started playing and I looked back and there were 10 people in the room and I just went, mm. I, I've tried so hard and it's it's evaporated. You know, I felt that way. The church is gone. What's happened? And I really begin to say, I'm, I'm not enough for this. I, I am not sufficient to carry this thing out and I see it through. And that's, that's where the reminder of Jesus, he is enough for me. And I just begin to speak back. So that's, that, that's, we, we have our identities. There's even the pursuit of, of just fame. And I think maybe not so much, well, to some degree still there is these days, but the, the desire to be 
the celebrity Christian or to have the platform to be the the pastor that people are seeking and listening to on the podcast and YouTube and all of that. And and that's enough. Or that's a place where we would say, hey, I built this platform. I built this this ministry. I, I built this thing and look at how great I am. And again, our eyes are off of Jesus and we need to see him. Yeah. And I think a follow-up question for me was going to be, what are some of the things that we tend to look to, to be our enoughness? What do we look to, to be our sufficiency or find our identity in? And you touched on a couple of them, just the idea of ministry success, mm -hmm. looking behind you and there's, you know, 10 folks in the room. I, I, I mean, that's almost mm -hmm. triggering to me, especially in my church planting days, the, just that feeling of, oh Lord, please just send one more family through that door. Yeah. The, yeah. It, it, it was a soul searching a crisis of, I don't want to say crisis of faith, but a kind of faith crisis, not yeah. in the sense of like, I, I'm of not a calling. Christian, but yeah, exactly. But like, what am I doing? Is, is this worth it? Those sorts of things. And then the second one you brought up, I think is really important today too, because e even if it's not about building a platform online, I think it's, we see it now and again, the pastor who is drawing attention to himself, mm -hmm. he may not trying to be you know, creating a, a fame culture, so to speak, but he spends a lot of time online mm -hmm. and he's getting a lot of attention the, all the wrong ways by being a reviler or a mocker. He's, he, he's sitting in the seat of scoffers. I think even that's more common because you get more sort of pats on the back, you get more traction, you get, even if you're getting animosity, you're getting people angry, there's just something happened. There's friction. There's a right. spark there that's not in your daily ministry life, which is a slow burn and right. it's, it's hard going. And I think there's a lot of guys in smaller contexts, maybe in smaller churches, this is where they're kind of, you know, feeling the juice is mm -hmm. well, I can, I can hang out on Twitter all day and dog on Russell Moore and, and people come around and they pat me on the back and that sort of thing. In, any others that you can think of? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of idols sure. to choose from, but. One that maybe is, is particular to our context but yet still I think could be a danger is wanting to build a legacy of ministry faithfulness. And and by that, I mean, not just anchoring down their ministry on, we held the line doctrinally. We kept orthodoxy. You know, we had this maybe smaller box of theological perspectives that I as a pastor was faithful to hold. And, um, and yet in the periphery of that, holding that doctrine, there's maybe moral compromise in the church. There's a lack of integrity. You even spoke about there's guys that got really great theology and yet they're pugnacious. They're, they're revilers. They're not gentle as the, the scripture calls an elder to be. And, and yet they're saying, well, it's time to fight and I'm right. And right. I think that that desire to be right and to have a ministry legacy of rightness that's one of the letters that I think that's one of the things that Jesus tries to address. Hey, you've, you've got this church that Jesus commends. You've held the truth. You've got good works. And yet you have a woman in your midst that's basically playing Jezebel right now, or there's a leadership thing going on where there's sexual immorality and you're not addressing it, even though you're addressing, we've got right doctrine. And so I think that that idea of building a legacy, having right doctrine can be another danger that we could be susceptible to because we we do love the gospel, we do love right doctrine, and yet we can avoid or ignore some of the moral collapse that's going on behind us. That's kind of opposite where maybe many churches in mainline context have gone and said, well, we're not so concerned about the doctrinal stuff. It's more, uh, we want to be in step with culture. 
and aligned with culture so that we aren't reviled <laughs> in the world. And, and so it, it could go either way in either direction. I think those are, yeah, some ways that which, whether it's higher doctrine or it's more social and ethical movements, either way can be a distraction. Let's shift just a bit and talk about the lonely pastor. Because the book isn't just about sort of, you know, poking us in the, in the idols, so to speak. It's, it, you really are in, in a sense, pastoring pastors with this book. It, it has a pastoral quality to it. In my experience, and I assume in yours as well, because I think this is pretty common. Well, someone once said that leadership itself is lonely, mm-hmm. that to be a leader is to be lonely because you're in a sense out in front. There are things that you carry that others not just don't carry, but can't carry by right. virtue of the fact that you're in the position. It's not, you know, it's not a malicious thing. It's just the nature of the position right. is you carrying things alone. You see things that others don't see. You have responsibilities that others don't have. There's a lot of pastors who, for whatever reason, I mean, I think I know some of the reasons, but I want you to tease them out. I think that they can't speak up about this. They can't get up on a Sunday morning at the pulpit and, and say, I'm lonely. Mm. This is, this is really hard, even though all week someone is in their office or across the table at the coffee shop or calling them on the phone saying, I'm lonely, I'm struggling, I'm doubting, I'm, they're carrying the weight of everybody else talking about what they're going through, which is right and proper. I'm not begrudging that at all. That's, that's the part of, of pastoring is hearing that, but it's almost not reciprocal. A pastor mm-hmm. cannot get up and say. I'm struggling right now, maybe in certain environments, but in general, most pastors don't feel like they can speak up. Number one, if you could speak to that, why yeah. is that? And should it be? Maybe it should be. Maybe that's just, hey, this is part of the job, guys. But why don't more pastors feel like they can speak up? How does your book speak to that experience? Yeah, no, I think many guys maybe can't speak up because they do want to lead well and they have a sense of, of, you know, I've been called to this ministry. Hopefully they have other elders around them and a plurality that there can be some of that soul sharing and that, that burden distributed across a uh, leadership uh, within the church. But they're just carrying extra things and to say, hey, if I, if I expose or if I share this with everybody that, you know, I'm struggling the church, I'm going to lose credibility maybe. And I don't want to lose that. And I don't want to lose the influence that I have there because you are called to a higher role and a higher standard as a pastor. I think it's not necessarily healthy, but we, we tend to hold it in ourselves rather than I think looking for a, a fraternity of fellow pastors or a network or you know, a community of other leaders that we can say, hey, this is what I'm carrying here. And you know, we can have a friendship because you're experiencing similar things uh, in your context. And just to be able to have a phone call or a Zoom uh, call and say, hey, brother, let's pray together. Let's, let's share our lives. I think we get territorial too and think, you know, it's kind of the strong man deal. If I'm, if I'm enough, if I can carry this by myself, then things will be great and the church will be great. And I don't want to expose my own weaknesses and my own limitations and uh, being tired and exhausted. So I'm hopeful that in this book, I'm able to address pastors with, you know, this is what I love about these, these letters. Uh, in every one of them, Jesus speaks to a specific context, a, a specific city. If you're preaching through the, the, the seven churches, take the time to do the cultural context work of the background of each city, because Jesus has a specific way he reveals himself to every single pastor and church at the very beginning of the letter. And so he'll say, this is the sword that comes from my mouth. And you're like, why is Jesus talking to Thyatira about a sword? Well, in that particular city, they were being ruled by the sword of the Roman Empire and its authority there. And what, what Rome said was going to go was going to go. And so 
there was this attempt to just culturally adapt to that. And Jesus is saying, no, you're in the city. Satan's throne is right there, but my word is what rules. And, and you should hold fast to that. And so my, my attempt is to say, let's look at Jesus and how great he is. I get the term sufficiency, how sufficient he is for every single context so that we lean in and rest on him and our union with him. And out of that, draw the resources for our leadership. It is lonely. It is hard to be doing it on our own. My heart is heavy for brothers that are solo pastors and have to carry that burden a lot by themselves. And, and I would encourage those men to, to seek out other brothers, other friends, other pastors to walk alongside them with. And let's, let's say, hey, let's keep our eyes on Jesus together in that. But we need to see again and again and again just how sufficient Jesus is, how great he is, because he's going to be the one to carry us. And every letter ends with that promise to the overcomer, which in reality is Christ who has overcome for us. And so our union with him gives us that promise and that victory. And as we continue to walk with him and pursue that, we experience it more in whole. Well, one of the ironies, I think, of the position or the, the office is this sense of loneliness. So pastors are in their heads a lot, mm -hmm. I, in my experience. And yet at the same time, sometimes lack a, a sense of, well, in the book you call self-awareness, I sometimes say, I think a lot of pastors are self-conscious, but not self-aware. Right. And maybe that's a distinction without a difference, but I think there's a difference. We're self-conscious, but we're not very self-aware. You address the issue of, of a lack of self-awareness in the book. Why, why do you think a lot of pastors lack self-awareness, despite the fact that we're kind of mm -hmm. very internal, you know, most of them, and we're carrying things that are largely internal that we don't express. So. You would think we're in our heads a lot. We're thinking about ourselves a lot, but why does that not automatically translate to a, a you know, to self-awareness? There's something that happens, at least to me, and I have a feeling that it's probably pretty general. There's something that happens on a Sunday morning when you come out of your office and the church starts to gather. And now it's not just been throughout the week and you've been with people here or there. You've had some meetings or some you know, meals with other folks in the congregation and that sort of thing. Now it's where everybody's here. And for me, there's a little bit of some gears change in my, in my head and in my body and my emotions where it's all, all of a sudden, like now I'm really on now people are really watching me and I have to project and I'll use the word perform, if you will. Well, you know, I've got to have my sermon. I want to faithfully feed the church well from Jesus's word. So I want to have a decent sermon for them. I want to have done the labor for them. I want to communicate it clearly. So now I've got to be able to project to the church. I've done the work this week. I'm ready to serve you. You are, as you come in here, you're going to get something sound, uh, something from Jesus, something good for your soul. And, and I'm expectant today that God is going to work and change lives and cause us to mature in Christ and even sinners to repent and be saved. And so I'm projecting, I think, all of this stuff. And that's where many times in the week and maybe even in our sermon prep, we're thinking about the projecting of ourselves rather than thinking about the reality of our souls, where we're truly at and what's maybe intrinsically going on in our hearts. And I, I don't love silence. And so even to have moments of silence, that's when my soul starts telling me things about myself that I can be like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not ready to go there. I, I'm not <laughs> certainly want to deal with that. And so let's just kind of tune that out and shut it off. And that can become a compounding reality that if we don't address those things, if we're not truly aware of ourselves in the way that is right from the scriptures informing us of ourselves and Jesus, you know, Jesus calls these churches to repent. Five out of the seven, he's got a word of correction for them. And so Jesus is saying to them, 
brothers, I, I love you. I love you deeply, but I see these things that are, they're not fitting for our walk. And so repent and come back to me and change. If we're not hearing that and addressing that in our souls regularly, it compounds. And so the projection of ourselves to the congregations becomes greater. And the, there's a gap. There's a big gap between who we are and who we project ourselves to be. And that's where we become that unaware of ourselves, really this unself-aware soul, I think, as I called it, is there that, man, I don't even know really truly myself and my sin. And I, I need the light of Christ to shine on me and expose me really deeply. Man, I, I think the performative aspect you just put your finger on is so key to this. And it's not even just the Sunday morning on the stage or mm -hmm. being the front facing, welcoming people out the door. It imp impacts me now, even just having lunch with my residents or I'm constantly thinking like, how are they enjoying this lunch? Am mm -hmm. I asking the right questions? Am I, and on one level, that kind of analysis is good, right? We should be. I think there's a good self-awareness. I think there's a difference mm -hmm. between self-conscious and self-aware. Self-conscious is me wondering, are they walking away going, man, it's great to be helped by Jared, or it was great to have lunch with Jared. Self-aware would be me asking, is this a help to them? Mm -hmm. am, am I being the right level of vulnerable? Am I asking good questions in the sense that this is good discipleship, mm -hmm. not how is it impacting their estimation of me? How right. is that sort of <laughs> So, I mean, there's a performative aspect in, in everything we do. And you're so right. I think once you get into that mode, more and more of it becomes performative and less and less is it vulnerability and authenticity and those sorts of things. Yeah. And we don't start bad in that way. We, we genuinely want to serve the people that we're with. We want to help our congregation, the folks that we disciple and lead. We want to help them grow. So there's a right starting place and motives for us in that regard. I, I think it is a sense of, as we go along and as we're caring for them and trying to lead them, we can begin to say, okay, what does this, am I looking great here? Am I really doing the best and serving well? And the focus gets off of Jesus and it gets on us again. I, I love the illustration that John the Baptist gives in John 3, right? Where Jesus' discipleship ministry and his baptism ministry is all of a sudden got a greater market share, if you will, than John's and his disciples are saying, hey, What's the, <laughs> we got to figure this yeah. out. Like we're losing market share. And John gives the analogy of the wedding. And he says the friend of the bridegroom, his job is to make sure the bride has her eyes on the bridegroom, right? If her eyes are on the, on, on me, the best man, like that's a loss. That's not a good friend. That's not a good thing. And so he positions us, I think as leaders in ministry and pastors and all of that as human, even as our job is to help the church get their eyes on Jesus. And so. Jesus must increase, we must decrease. And I just, I just love that, that visual of, uh, you know, at a wedding, the, what, the bridal party is there, the groomsmen are all there. And if the bride and the groom aren't looking at each other, we've got other issues to talk about and deal yeah. with. What I love about your book also is just the trajectory you've written it. I mean, you're, you're a writer. You're not just a pastor. You're a writer. You think compositionally. Your work with gospel Center discipleship is largely in, in the coaching of writers and aspiring writers. So there is a narrative to the book. You're not just kind of throwing things at the wall to see what sticks. And so I, I love the idea or, or just the visible, I'm just even looking at the, the table of contents, you notice the arc of you're shepherding people towards really intimacy with Christ. So the chapters develop and you end up in this abiding in Christ concept and intimacy with Christ. This is a similar question to 
one of the one of the earlier questions I asked you, why did pastors struggle with Jesus being enough? And in my experience, also pastors tend to struggle with a personal relationship with mm-hmm. Jesus, developing intimacy with Christ, which again is also counterintuitive because it's their job to know Jesus, basically. Why do pastors, do you think, struggle with this when theoretically they have more time than the guy who works nine to five, looking at a computer screen, pushing numbers around or managing people at a retail store or the mom who's got to be chasing little kids every day. The pastor's job is to be the Jesus guy. Mm-hmm. And yet why do pastors struggle with intimacy with Jesus? Do you think? We're distracted. I, I think we get busy with doing, we get busy with ministry. And we tell ourselves, if I'm going to sit down and, and prepare my Bible study or a sermon or whatever it is, well, I'm, I'm with Jesus. There you I'm, go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the word right now and I'm, I'm kind of listening to him, but it's really, I'm a, I'm a channel. And so it's going to go out to the congregation and you know, I get a little gleaning here and there off the fringes for myself, which is great, but that's, that's good. And, and we don't like, I don't think. So we're distracted by many things there, ministry pressures and, oh, there's, there's a funeral that has to happen and, or, you know, congregation members in crisis or these things pop up that kind of like, oh, pull our attention. And we gravitate towards those things as well as I think there's a fear of slowness with Jesus. And, you know, so I live in the Detroit metro area and many of the people in my congregation work for the big three, the auto industry, Ford, General Motors, Fiat Chrysler, and their job, like the pace of ministry in Detroit is very reflective of the culture of industry in Detroit. And that was something I've learned when I first moved here. I was like, oh man, these people are hard workers. And so for me as a pastor to say, I'm going to go low and slow and abide with Jesus and have this more agricultural vision of ministry. They just look at me and go like, that's lazy. What are you doing? And, <laughs> right, and, exactly. Yeah. And so there's this like pressure that that could be forced on from the congregation, but also could be internal in my mind. Nobody said to me, Jeremy, if you sit down and you just spend time in the word and prayer as a pastor, like you're not doing your job. Like they would actually say the opposite. You know, like you're not doing your job if you don't do those things. But there's this external feel or a- environment that we're like, I've got to work hard because got to be enough, got to grow the church, got to lead well. And so that steals against the mentality and the reality of abiding in Christ and being patient and with him and slow in prayer. There's just prayer is not something that you, you're going to get immediate or you necessarily feel immediate fruitfulness on. You know, to sit down and just spend half an hour with the Lord or more in prayer. What did you do there? You feel that. So you're like, well, no, I've got to get the things done. You know, I've got an in, inbox of email that's piling up and I've got questions to answer and strategies to develop and people to reach out to. And so we replace, I think, doing the work of ministry with being with the one who calls us into ministry and him working in through us. So we've got to cultivate more of a sense of, I think, pastoral slowness for our church that will push back against the cultural view, career and vocation, and occupation, I think, but to, to cultivate that sense of, let's be slow with Jesus. Let's, let's take the better portion of sitting at his feet rather than doing all the work of preparing a great meal for him, as it were. Yeah, that could be a distraction there. I think that's pretty deep. What you described about that external pressure or just the cultural pressure, man, I resonate with that so much, even in my last context, which was rural. Mm-hmm. And so you, it, it is in some sense, a slower pace of life, but like 90% of 
of the men in particular in my church worked with their hands. They were blue collar guys. They were farmers. They were construction guys. And, and like you said, none of them ever said to me, Jared, what do you do? Read books all day. I think they expected me to do what my job was, which was not what their job was, but I still felt this, like this need to produce. I felt right. this residual guilt about I'm lazy because I'm, I'm spending the next hour and a half reading this commentary or mm-hmm. whatever it is. And I think I end up using Jesus rather than being with Jesus because using Jesus feels more efficient, feels more productive, feels more. Right. Right. You know, all those things. And there's, we want to honor the people in our congregation. So we want them to know like, Hey, we're working hard for the, yeah, sake exactly. of the gospel and we want to walk with you. We want to be able to speak into the way that they're working and the issues that they're developing in their lives. So when a busy guy comes to me and says, Hey, I've got, I just don't have time because I've got this, these pressures at work. Well, there's a part of me that empathizes and says, Oh, I feel that too. Like we can, we can commiserate on this. And maybe I don't have the resources in that moment then to be able to draw from what Jesus has done in my life, to be able to speak to it well on that. And yet, because I've been busy, like he's been busy, I feel a validation to that. That's, a, that's something that even Eugene Peterson said is, was really just abhorrent to him in ministry was the busy pastor. And one of his, uh, this is from the contemplative pastor, one of his directives was take hold of your schedule and like wrestle that schedule down to the ground and you control your schedule. Don't let your church, don't let your people manipulate your schedule for you. Block off time. And so yeah. I've, that's one of my practices is to a particular day. This time frame, I'm not doing phone calls right now. I'm not going to meet with somebody unless there's a, I mean, amazing crisis. But like, this is time for me to be with the Lord and to sit and rest in his word and pray and just to do the ordinary, mundane, invisible things of ministry that you won't get you a lot of glory but they are the right and deep things of what it means to be a pastor. That's great. Brother, what are your hopes for the book? What do you hope people take away? Well, ultimately, my hope is that we will see, you know, pastors will see Jesus. I I just want, I want him to be glorified. I want our eyes to be up on him and to just draw from him the reality of his, his greatness and sufficiency. Just to, if, if pastors come away from reading this book, loving Jesus more, that's, that's it for me. Like that's, that's the ultimate desire. And I want this to book then secondarily maybe, or an outflow of that is to be a help to pastors wherever they're at in their situations and ministries and to be able to just encourage men to look to Jesus and grow. And so um, my hope is that I'll be able to help and say some things that will be of meaning to the work of the ministry, to pastoral vocation. And that again, we'll love Jesus because he is the chief shepherd. We'll recognize he holds his pastors in his hand. He's got us. And he's going to carry us through to the end. And so we can remember our union with him and be satisfied in him all the more because of who he is. The book is Pastor Jesus is Enough, Hope for the Weary, the Burned Out, and the Broken. It's available now from Lexham Press. The author is Jeremy Wrightbull. Brother, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Jared, thank you. And a word of appreciation to you for writing the forward on this book. You're part of it. Yeah, I was glad to do it. I deeply appreciate your investment and your your kind words about this book and about me to help out pastors. And our prayer is just that Christ would be exalted. Thank you. It's the kind of book we need more of. Yeah. In full disclosure, I meant to mention that I did write the foreword for the book, <laughs> but I'm glad to help you promote it beyond that even because it's the kind of book, especially for you know, for pastors that we need more and more of. So may your tribe increase, brother. Dear listener, you. if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a good review on iTunes. Well, not iTunes, I guess it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast. 
hosted by Jared Wilson, managing editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.